Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of events, workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. Founded on the core belief that each person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2020, held from the 2nd to the 6th of November with both live events and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at genevapeaceweek.ch. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our EduPeace discussion within the Geneva Peace Week Forum. Here are two of our speakers, Alistair Davison, an executive manager of Cordoba Peace Institute Geneva, and Mark Clark, CEO of Generation for Peace, an organization based in Amman, Jordan. They will share the experience of providing an education programs during COVID-19 pandemic in vulnerable regions. Hello, Alistair and Mark. Hello, Tamina. Hi, Takmina. Great to be with you. It is great having you here. Thank you so much. Why don't we start with Alistair, please? Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, and I'll just say a few words about uh, Caldwell Peace Institute Geneva, or CPI, uh, which has existed since 2002. We work on peace promotion, conflict transformation, and mediation, and mostly in uh, Muslim-majority countries and regions. We use training, safe mediation spaces, and a methodology of diapraxis to enable parties to, in conflict to identify and carry out common work together and reduce tensions, leading to conflict transformation. Uh, we also carry out action-focused research. Our projects are in North Africa, West Asia or Middle East, and the Sahel region and now in East Africa as well. And we address different lines of tension depending on the context. So for example, ideological tensions in North Africa between secularists and Islamists, uh, ethnic tensions, which are quite common across the Sahel region, sectarian tensions in some places, and tensions relating to specific events such as elections. Our projects focus on conflict transformation and increasingly, sadly, on preventing violent extremism and violence, but some relate to education. So, for example, we have a project in the Nineveh province of Iraq uh, to promote dialogue between teachers and school principals who stayed during the IS uh, in, in Islamic State period and those who left. So there are tensions there around um, what, what was taught and the, the curriculum of those who stayed and taught, and whether they collaborated with IS. And on the other side, there was obviously some resentment of people who managed to escape and get away and have now come back. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of mutual suspicion between uh, different uh, educationists in that part of, um, of Iraq. Um, so we're working with them to promote dialogue and ultimately, hopefully, to improve the curriculum, to help them to improve the curriculum. Uh, the other project um, that we're working on is in Mali uh, with regard to education, where we, we have a project relating to religious schools, the Ecole Koranique 
which are outside the state system and receive no support from the government. These schools are, atta uh, are attended by many children and youth. And research has shown that good religious education actually helps to prevent youth falling prey to violent extremist groups. But they often graduate without skills for the job market. So without languages, such as in Mali, French is important, computer skills, um, mathematics and so on. So this puts them at a disadvantage once they leave school. Our role in the project is to facilitate a dialogue between the Maître Coranique or the Association of Quranic uh, Teachers um, and the Ministry of Education. The purpose is ultimately to bring the Ecole Coranique alongside the state system, ensure that the schools are adequately funded and resourced and ensure essential subjects are taught while respecting religious and cultural norms. Thank you so much, Alistair. That's that's quite impressive. The regions and the variety of projects that you have within your organization. What are the ongoing challenges that your project faced during the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, a lot of our projects are not just the ones relating to education, mm -hmm. but I would say particularly those ones at the moment. Uh, rely to an extent on holding workshops and seminars and that's probably been our biggest challenge is actually getting people together so mm -hmm. whether it's you know for those two particular projects whether it's getting together uh, teachers in in uh, in the Nineveh project uh, province of um, of Iraq mm -hmm. or in Mali um, the restrictions on movement and so on have mean it's been very difficult have meant it's been very difficult to um, to get people together for workshops Mm -hmm. um, we're lucky because we do have partners on the ground. So in some of our other projects, we've been able to carry on. So recently, our local partner in Nigeria, um, the Dara Landalus Center, which is based in Kanu, managed to carry out a training for journalists mm -hmm. um, in Maiduguri, which is part of an ongoing project mm -hmm. there. Um, yeah. And in Zanzibar, where we're doing some work prior to the elections, Mm -hmm. They were able to hold meetings with our local partner there as well, the Friends of Zanzibar. Um, and research has, so research has continued, you know, we, we write, we do quite a bit of research around the themes of um, extremism mm -hmm. um, and so on. And so we've been able to do research, but it's been difficult. We weren't able to hold the peer review workshops mm -hmm. and so on so we had to do all the peer reviewing of, of, of research online but that works yeah. the challenge the big challenge i think is where you have uh projects where you need joint activities mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the researches were held i guess remotely right yeah and what about the election related training and journalist trainings were they Those also held remotely no, they were actually, we actually managed to hold those. Um, so in northern Nigeria, different mm -hmm. uh, states um, have had lockdowns for different periods okay. of time. But once the lockdowns were lifted, we managed to hold this uh, workshop in my degree, for example. Mm -hmm. And we had, um, we had to, we had to rent a very large room mm -hmm. uh, for the training, but we had more than 40 journalists who came mm -hmm. and Attended. So that was good. And in um, in Zanzibar, it was a similar 
similar kind of situation. Obviously, mm -hmm. you know, we had to um, insist on on the the usual um, preventive measures, you know, mm -hmm. social distancing, washing hands, and and and, and so on. But mm -hmm. we managed to hold um, uh, some training sessions and also multi-stakeholder dialogues, as we call them, sort of meetings of wise people who lead some of our um, efforts. Mm -hmm. So they yeah. were also held in uh, bigger buildings and yeah. uh, with social yeah. distancing yeah. and uh, mask, obligatory yeah. masks. Okay. Um, so how did these challenges impact your projects with relation to education pre and during COVID-19 pandemic? Um, well, because both of those projects have a large component of you know of, of work where we need to bring people together i would say they've been affected quite badly actually those mm -hmm. those projects and and uh, activities have been delayed um uh, we weren't able to hold a few of the workshops we wanted to have this year mm -hmm. and so it's not an, a direct impact on you know through our projects not a direct impact on education as such but indirectly um, it obviously slows down a lot of the work which could help with education mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would say I mean education has been affected very badly worldwide mm -hmm. by, by COVID um, something like 90% I read of statistics say 90% of children students worldwide have been subjected to some kind of um, restrictions on being able to go to school so mm -hmm. I you know and in in richer countries it's difficult even in richer countries for everybody to have access to education at a time like this, but in mm -hmm. poorer countries where um, then you may not be able to get any kind of um, education through radio or TV, mm -hmm. and where you can, it's probably restricted to the you know the oldest boy in the house would probably be the one that was you know, the focus was on to receive mm -hmm. education. So the other children in the household might not receive education. So where you've got you know, under-resourced or poor uh, communities um, mm -hmm. with a large number of children, I think it's been a huge, mm -hmm. huge impact on, on, on education. Um, well, that raises even greater challenges, which are related more to culture rather than the crisis, right? Yes, I think, and, and I think it's where gains were made, being made perhaps in in terms of girls receiving education and so on i think that's probably been affected well i know it's been affected more um mm -hmm. it's been more impact on girls education um mm -hmm. even than on you know on boys education because mm -hmm. of the you know the as you say the cultural um preference in mm -hmm. some in some communities uh, yeah. so so it's a difficult difficult time across the board but mm -hmm. um, I mean we know that uh, there's been an increase in child marriages um, during this year because mm -hmm. you know families who can't who who are struggling to cope one of the solutions is to marry off um, children at a younger age so mm -hmm. um, that's you know there are all sorts of impacts like that which are indirect they're not perhaps directly related to education and not directly related to our projects but they are impacts which we're seeing um, 
Yeah. Yeah, the education system is suffering the most, I think, during this crisis. And it's uh, in the really urgent need of funding. It's an urgent need of attention. And we all must take action as soon as possible. Otherwise, it might be too late, especially in those regions that are the most vulnerable at the moment and lack the most important infrastructures. Thank you, Alistar. Well, now let's move to Mark and learn about Generation for Peace a bit. Sure, and thanks for the opportunity to be included in this. Um, Generations for Peace is a little unusual. We're a, a Jordanian international NGO. So our global headquarters uh, is here in Amman, Jordan, where I'm joining you from. Um, but our work is, is truly international across the Middle East and North Africa, but also parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, parts of Asia, the Balkans, um, uh, parts of Europe, and indeed North America. Um, we've in fact been active in our peacebuilding work in 51 countries mm. over the last 13 years. Um, we've trained almost 20,000 volunteers, and it's really their work that we support that is having the, the peacebuilding impacts at grassroots level in communities uh, in very diverse contexts in those different countries. Um, and our, our peacebuilding mission is is really articulated at that grassroots level, that local level of trying to support people to uh, see a change in their own communities on local issues of conflict and violence. And I think, you know, with the EduPeace theme, um, of course, a lot of our work is engaging young people through uh, both formal and informal education structures in different countries, because we're always trying to find existing structures through which to, to intervene. And we see our work um, both as peace building education, so providing values, knowledge and skills in peace building, grassroots conflict transformation. But we've also found a lot of our engagement in the education sector has been providing peace-building inputs, working to reduce violence within education systems, uh, where we often see, for example, in public school systems, uh, quite serious levels of, of systemic violence. Um, and that's been a focus for our work in Jordan, uh, historically before the Syrian refugee crisis, and then I think exacerbated significantly by the additional pressures of the of the Syrian refugee influx into Jordan, uh, including large numbers of school-aged children, putting additional pressures on the education system. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the work that you do around the globe. It's it's quite impressive and interesting, and I'm sure the volunteers appreciate your efforts very much. Well, what about the ongoing challenges that your projects face during the crisis? So I, I think massive challenges, and um, we recognize that's uh, shared by everyone on the planet at the moment. I think uh, COVID-19 pandemic has, has disrupted everything. Um, and I, I guess I can break it down into different challenges at different phases. 
Um, firstly, here in Jordan and in, in many of our, our other program countries, uh, we've been through uh, different forms of lockdown. Um, in Jordan, the initial lockdown was extremely uh, quick and decisive and, and absolute, uh, with the entire population being under stay-home curfew conditions. So that meant a, a very quick move for all of us to a work-from-home um, uh, sort of modality. Um, the staff and all our team reacted extremely quickly uh, to that. And I, I was actually very impressed and, and pleased with the, the way in which productivity really didn't skip a beat. Um, we've got great technology, great infrastructure that enabled that to happen. Um, but just the, the resilience shown by staff um, as we uh, sort of endured uh, several months of lockdown through March, April and into May um, was, was really impressive. And we know many other organizations have been through that journey as well. Of course, school closures, closures of youth centers um, also meant our direct people-to-people uh, -to -people engagement in our programmatic work uh, was also brought to a halt. And, and so that led to immediate uh, additional work for us to figure out how can we still achieve the same programmatic objectives, um, but under these very new uh, constraints. And so it led to us uh, developing, uh, firstly, a way of staying engaged with all our, all our volunteers, all the school teachers. And I should add, just to give you a sense of scale, in Jordan, we, we're actively programming in 1,003 schools right across the country. Uh, we train each year more than 3,000 school teachers, and then we mentor and support them every week in the delivery of their sessions uh, to students. So we're engaging about 120,000 uh, young people just through those activities alone, in addition to many other programs uh, that we have in youth centers and in communities. So the first priority for us was to, to remain engaged and to use social media and WhatsApp groups, uh, firstly, to pass on uh, COVID-19 public health awareness messaging. Uh, we felt that you know our first duty always is the safety and security of our Generations for Peace community. But then we realized under lockdown, if, if people cannot leave their houses, even under those constraints, there are opportunities um, to engage people in our peace-building activities. And so a lot of our uh, work with young people uses sport-based games and arts-based activities uh, that normally we do in, in the real world in, with groups of people. And we quickly adapted them and produced a series of videos uh, and then disseminated the videos through social media and through WhatsApp groups um, so that people in their own households could lead activities and then could share them. And by sharing them also, they were, they were staying engaged with, with friends and in their community. And it, it really sort of picked up. It, it gave people a sense of um, purpose. It gave siblings an opportunity to engage um, you know, their fellow brothers and sisters, but also their parents or their cousins in the, in the same household. And it, it built a sort of sense of competition amongst youth in a particular community to see if they could do the activities and, and do them in the funniest way or the most creative way. So those kind of stay home video activities were a, a surprising success and I think enabled us to, to feel that we were staying in touch through what felt like quite a long period of lockdown. Mm -hmm. 
And then the next phase was kind of as, as lockdown conditions lifted, um, working out, okay, how could we adapt our, our activities to fit the, the constraints of safety precautions for COVID? So previously, group exercises with youth in a school or in a youth center, how could we change them to be smaller groups? How could we change them to enable physical distancing? How could we ensure that contact with any physical object like a ball or some other device uh, would be limited? So we went through all of our activities, found the activities that were the easiest to, to quickly adapt, and again, produced videos of these activities as the best way of, of disseminating those. And of course, the additional precautions of wearing masks, of hand washing and sanitization, of temperature controls uh, for, for these small groups before they, they participate in activities. So these COVID protocols, I think, just demonstrated to us that you know, where, where many had thought you know, activities were now impossible, uh, it was just a case of working out what adaptations are necessary uh, to enable us still to, to carry on engaging young people. And I think it's incredibly important um, knowing that you know, the, the pandemic is, is still going to be with us for, for many months, indeed, you know, quite likely through most of next year. Uh, we cannot simply give up that engagement. We have to continue um, engaging young people and supporting them um, because the, the needs are also increasing. And then perhaps the, just the last sort of area of activity for us has been a mass effort on digitization. So I've mentioned these you know, production of videos, but in parallel with that, really digitizing our whole peace building curriculum and digitizing how we deliver that in the form of trainings, um, but also beyond just trainings, how we digitize activities with the, with the target group, school students or, or youth in communities. Um, that effort is not over, um, but it's been a massive acceleration of work that we had planned to do when we were doing fairly slowly before COVID hit. And in some ways it's shown us again that COVID has prompted us to do this work and actually we're building a new capability which is going to serve us extremely well even after COVID. Um, we're now able to operate both online and on-site uh, and indeed hybrid versions of that uh, pretty effectively. Um, there's one last challenge which I think we face that I think many other organizations face, which is the economic impact of COVID. And I think the economic crisis is uh, especially hard-hitting for, for NGOs and civil society organizations all around the world. I think we've been describing it as, as potentially an extinction event for those organizations. And the real risk is whilst you know, the private sector may be getting bailouts and, and economic support from different governments around the world, it's often the NGOs and civil society organizations that are, are forgotten and left out. And we see many closing down operations in different countries, laying off uh, large numbers of staff. And we fear that this is going to lead to a, a systemic, significant loss of mm -hmm. capacity at that level globally, which really, I think, translates into you know, decades of investment being lost. And you know, even at the highest levels with Secretary General uh, Guterres saying, you know, the, 
the SDGs and all the progress that had been made on the SDGs is also now at risk. And we're seeing backsliding on, on hard-earned progress there. So I think the economic challenge uh, is also with us uh, for the long term through 2021 and beyond. Thank you so much, Mark, for raising this topic of economic impact of COVID-19 pandemic on the financial needs of our education systems around the globe. So at this time, it's our turn to raise awareness and influence and encourage people to donate, to finance the education systems around the globe because the most vulnerable are in need at this time. Thank you so much for all the work that you both do. In conclusion, what would be your message to our audience regarding the current situation? I think one of the lessons which I hope can emerge from COVID and at the same time, I fear it won't emerge, <laughs> is this idea of upstream prevention. And this idea is captured in the SDGs. It's captured in the whole prevention agenda. And essentially, it's saying that, you know, preventing thing, bad things from happening um, is, is both better and cheaper than dealing with them when they do happen. And I think what's fascinating is that that idea of upstream prevention applies absolutely to COVID-19 and public health. Um, we know that prevention is cheaper than cure. There's all sorts of data already about the uh, investments that historically were being made in pandemic preparedness, and those investments were, were tailing off um, in, in recent decades, and now we're facing uh, the consequence of that. I think the upstream prevention argument also applies for peace building. And there's, there's great data on a number of pieces of research um, that spending a dollar uh, on upstream conflict prevention and violence reduction um, can save up to $16 on dealing with the costs of violence. Uh, the costs of violence globally are around $14 trillion a year. Um, and I think if we look ahead, you know, COVID-19 is really a dress rehearsal for the climate emergency, and that is also an upstream prevention um, uh, equation. And all three of these, public health, peace building, and climate change, I think the real message I want to get across to the audience is all three of them have a moral argument that uh, it's about saving lives, mm -hmm. but all three of them also have a compelling economic argument that prevention is also cheaper than dealing with things further downstream. I would say I have two messages, really. Uh, one relates uh, to our project, you know, with with Quranic schools, with the religious mm -hmm. schools, and with other projects we're likely to undertake in that area as well. And that's the importance of these schools. Um, it's it's easy to dismiss them as not being part of the formal education se sector, and maybe you know um, secularists um, or the, the you know the our, uh, Western, if you like, approach tends to sort of discount the value of these schools. But they're extremely important, 
um, because they, um, you know, a good moral religious education tends to uh, produce students who are less vulnerable to extremist groups. Mm. And um, there have been studies done by UNDP, UNICEF over the last couple of years that have, that have shown um, the importance of, of, of these schools in areas where that's the traditional form of education. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one, one, one message I would say is these are, these are important. And one of the other things about them is they can actually carry on sometimes in um, in conflict situations, they they can carry on. Then they're not shut down as quickly as sometimes as government schools, where you have you know um, armed groups, for example, who will will be fighting against the government. So they'll shut down the government schools for different reasons, maybe. But um, they they are an easy target. Um, often, Quranic schools can carry on for longer. So that's an important, that's first message, I would say. The other one is just, you know, at the moment, the funding of education, as you said, Tamina, is, is so important. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, whether schools are forced to close because of a pandemic like this, or they're forced to close because of conflict, mm -hmm. millions of children miss out. You know, thousands of children in the country, millions across the world miss, miss out because of um, because of uh, the closure of schools. And there's a t statistic I, I read that something like uh, 250 million children worldwide have never set uh, foot inside a classroom. Uh, this is a massive number of, of children that are, missing, that are missing out. And the appeals by the UN and by education agencies for funding, mm -hmm. um, they're very important that, that to have a, a response, whether it's from the Publics, you know, from governments or from um, private donors, from foundations, and so on. The ed education is the future, and it's very important. Thank you so much, Mark and Alistar, for such a fruitful discussion. It was very interesting to learn about your work during such hard times. On my side, I would say. Join us on November 3rd at 9 a.m. Central European time to learn the lessons learned and implement the solutions to improve the delivery of education programs during the Geneva Peace Week 2020. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.